From Audio Boom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Fifteen seconds. Guidance is internal. Ten, nine, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Well, hello again, and thank you for joining us on Space Nuts. Uh, my name's Andrew Dunkley, and with me, as always, is Fred Watson, astronomer from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Hi, Fred. Hi, Andrew. How is it going? Yeah, good. Nice to talk to you again. Today, yeah. we're going to talk about uh, yet another major announcement about the discovery of uh, gravitational waves. This made huge news um, not so long ago, but now they've discovered another I suppose you'd call round of gravitational wave evidence, uh, which was, uh, I think, discovered uh, around Christmas of last year, but they've only just finished analysing the data. It seems to take a long time to collate all that information. And now they've announced, yes, we found more. Uh, so we'll talk about that. We'll talk about light pollution, one of the biggest problems of our planet, not just for astronomers, but for people in general, I think. And uh, finally, um, uh, Australians are looking at uh, launching mini satellites. Uh, in fact, I think they've reached the space testing phase um, before they do proper launches. We'll talk about that as well. But first, Fred, gravitational waves. Now, this is the second major announcement in regard to the discovery of these. And if I recall correctly from our first discussion, uh, discussion when this really made massive headlines, these gravitational waves are created by black holes colliding. Is that a basic accuracy? <laughs> it, it, it is correct. That's right. Uh, in this instance, um, we think gravitational waves can be created by any process that involves large masses accelerating around, whether it's an exploding star or something collapsing uh, or colliding objects like these colliding black holes. Coming on the back of the first uh, discovery of, of gravitational waves that was uh, reported back in February, um, this is uh, really uh, the, the, almost the confirmation of the technology, but also a confirmation of the fact that we really are starting to uh, appreciate the fact that we're on a new era of discovery in terms of how we look at the universe. Um, gravitational waves are uh, really a very potent new way of exploring the universe at very great distances and in particular looking at some of the most exciting and um, puzzling events uh, in, the, in the universe. We might talk about that in a couple of seconds, but let me tell you what gravitational waves are. They, they... Yeah, I was going to say we, we probably need to understand more about what they are and why, and then why it's significant. Why it's significant, that's right. So, so it was um, good old Einstein who predicted uh, about 100 years ago that, uh, uh, well, he, his general theory of relativity says that space can actually bend, that space mm. is flexible. Uh, and um, that we've proved many, many times 
since then. What bends it is the presence of mass, uh, presence of matter. So, for example, the Earth sitting here, a very massive object, it, it warps the space around it slightly, and that warping is what we feel as gravity. Um, but what Einstein also said is, well, anything that is flexible uh, can vibrate, uh, uh, you know, and it can transmit waves. Just think of ripples on the surface of a pond. Uh, so the uh, possibility exists for gravitational waves to spread through space. You can imagine that space itself is vibrating and that spreads uh, a wave through space. The difficulty with that is that space is incredibly rigid. It doesn't bend very much unless you've got very high uh, masses. And so uh, it's, it's billions of times more rigid than steel. So uh, unlike steel, which will ring with vibrations if you hammer it, uh, space uh, tends not to want to do that because it is so rigid. Unless you've got some really quite dynamic uh, activity taking place. Now, that has all been predicted. In fact, we knew of the... Um, well, the, the, the existence of gravitational waves was proved back in the 1970s just by uh, doing energy calculations, actually from a, a, a pulsar, a, a pulsating star. <laughs> it is a pulsar, but it's caused by a rotating star that pulsates. Right. Not a pulsating star. Um, <laughs> are you still with me? Andrew? I'm totally confused now. <laughs> well, forget about that, and because okay. that's a furphy. The point was that it was demonstrated that gravitational waves must exist and that they might potentially be a way of examining the universe, exploring the universe, uh, to give us, you know, completely um, uh, unexpected, perhaps, uh, insights into, into what happens in these extreme cases. So um, over many years, people have tried to build gravitational wave detectors, including here in Australia. There's a man called David Blair over in WA who has uh, spent a lifetime working on gravitational waves. He's, he's one of the authors, actually, on these new papers that are coming out, so his contribution is, is well recognised. Uh, but it's only in February this year that the LIGO instrument, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, that's what it stands for, uh, detected the first unequivocal um, measurement of gravitational waves, which came from two colliding black holes. Um, now, that detection was made last September, but it took the guys until February to work it up into, uh, into a scientific paper to get rid of all the uh, possible pitfalls, do the analysis, do the statistics, and yes, you've got an unequivocal detection, which almost certainly will produce Nobel Prizes, by the way, yes. uh, for, the, for the people who were involved with that. So that tells you that it works. The, uh, the, the, the first observation was from two colliding black holes, uh, and the collision took place 1.3 billion years ago because you're, you're looking out into space, you're seeing these things washing towards you, these gravitational waves, having taken all that time uh, to, 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 to get to the Earth. Travelling, by the way, at the speed of light. So mm. um, I was going to ask how fast they would be. Yeah. Uh, and we, we still, based on the evidence we have collated, um, we still know that the speed of light is the fastest you can go. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's the impenetrable uh, speed limit within space itself. Um, so uh, the new detection that has been announced uh, in the last uh, week or so is once again from two colliding black holes. This time they're rather smaller than the other ones. This is a, 
a 14 solar mass and an eight solar mass black hole that have collided. By that, I mean eight times the mass of the sun. Uh, what happens when black holes collide is that they come together and they basically orbit one another. They kind of spin up. And as they get near the collision point, that spinning gets faster and faster until they collide. And, it, and it's because the, there are these heavy or large masses which are accelerating by the spinning. That's why the gravitational waves get propagated, because of that activity. So the, um, the uh, new observations uh, actually were made on Christmas Day uh, in the oh, okay. USA. Boxing Day, our time. So we call it the Boxing Day event. They call it the Christmas Day event. But that's when the measurements were made. And the announcement has now come out. It's in many ways a similar observation to the first one. These are two black holes, as I said, a bit smaller than the first one, but at a, a rather greater distance, about 1.4 billion um, light years away. Uh, that means, first of all, because it's smaller masses that are involved and also because it's further away, it means it's, it's a smaller signal that the LIGO has picked up. And so this is great stuff because it shows that they can actually detect things which are not quite as big as, as the first things that were found. And it, it tells you about the range of sensitivity of this instrument. Mm. Um, why is it so exciting? It's because, as I said, um, what you're potentially doing is opening up a window on the universe that we've never had before. Um, the uh, gravitational waves observatories, the two that exist at the moment, are, will be enhanced by many more. There's one in Italy called Virgo, which is going to come on online, I think, later this year. And what that will do is effectively build a kind of three-dimensional gravitational wave observatory around the surface of the Earth that will allow scientists to pinpoint the origin of these gravitational waves and therefore kind of start building a map of where these big disturbances have taken place in the universe. As time goes on, I think we'll find the sensitivity of these devices improves and eventually, um, and I'm not sure that this will happen in my lifetime, but the potential is there to be able to prove the to probe the gravitational disturbance that took place when the universe was created. In wow. other words, to look at the mechanism of the Big Bang, to look at how it happened, what happened in the immediate aftermath, did this period of inflation, this very rapid expansion that we think happened in the immediate uh, aftermath of the Big Bang. Did it really happen? Can you see the evidence of that mm. in gravitational waves? So this is, you know, it's such an exciting development. It really is on a par with the invention of radio astronomy and maybe even with the invention of the telescope back in the early 1600s. So Incredible. I, it, it is. And, and you know, we're, um, we're fortunate to be witnessing all this. Mm. And, of course, the other really big um, thing that, that is exciting, the astronomers that made that discovery on Christmas Day, is the fact that uh, they were working a public holiday and they got triple time. <laughs> Almost certainly, yeah. That <laughs> made them keener than ever. <laughs> yeah, sure. But it is pretty exciting news and we'll, um, we'll certainly be hearing a lot more about it. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, to one of your um, pet hates, I think, but uh, <laughs> it, it is uh, an all too common problem around the world, not only for astronomy, but for humanity in general, and that is light pollution. And some um, new information's come to light 
<laughs> boom, boom, uh, that shows that 80%, 80% of the population of the planet lives under light pollution. Uh, and I'm going to say straight up, uh, they've been wondering for a long time why uh, modern humans are having trouble sleeping. I think there's the answer. I think that is absolutely the answer. And, and I, if I might just um, self-indulge for a moment, there have been two occasions in recent years where I have managed to be able to sleep in, in pitch black rooms, absolutely no light penetration whatsoever. One was in an interior cabin of a cruise ship mm-hmm. and one was at a house that we were renting and um, it was just happened to have blackout curtains or something, but they were both pitch black rooms. And in those two instances, I have never slept better. No light, no light. Yeah. Anyway, that was just a sideline, but light pollution is a huge problem. Yes, it it, it is. And just to sort of illuminate that sideline a little bit, um, um, we now know uh, that uh, our eyes are sensitive to images, of course, but there's also, <clears throat> excuse me, a layer of um, ganglion cells in front of our retina. <clears throat> excuse me, Andrew, uh, that um, that basically respond to light. And what they do is they shut down uh, the secretion of melatonin, which is the sleep-enhancing hormone. So if you've got light, these ganglion cells are responding to it and saying, <clears throat> "Don't bother about the sleep uh, hormone because." It's, it's light and, and your brain needs to be active. Mm. So the, um, that is uh, now being recognised. Actually, just um, this is not really to do with the light pollution atlas, but uh, it is also true that we now know that blue light um, is particularly damaging late at night to your circadian rhythms, and it's part of the same process. So and if you're you know looking what? at a, a screen that's rich in blue light and most, yep. um, <clears throat> most uh, computer screens and game screens and phone screens are, then what you're doing is you're, you're, you're telling your body, oh, no, we, we, we don't want to go to sleep. We're disrupting mm. circadian rhythms. <clears throat> so that all that is, is new, uh, you know, basically new research that feeds into the idea of how important light is to our well-being and how important the regulation of light is. Um, going back to why we're talking about this, <laughs> um, uh, light, of course, is... Uh, in the wrong place uh, is bad news on a on a wider scale uh, just than uh, than um, our own well-being it affects the well-being of many nocturnal animal species and in particular it affects our ability to see the night sky so light pollution is light that's going where it's not supposed to go and and it is one of the ills of our modern world in that the cities of the world have uh, huge plumes of light above them which is doing nothing but illuminating a few passing jet planes and the occasional uh, astronaut in the International Space Station. And I might point out um, that you and I have discussed this in the past uh, in radio programs, and I know you've been working very closely on the issue of light pollution and continue to do so. (laughs) Um, But when you're talking about light pollution, you might have an observatory hundreds of kilometres away from a major city, but that city is still causing issues for that particular observatory. It's not, it's, you know, the proximity of light pollution is, is not in a tight... Um, no, that's re- right. It, it spreads <laughs> out over a long, a long way. Yeah, that's absolutely right. What happens is the, uh, 
the, the atmosphere itself is really good at spreading light around. Mm. Uh, and um, in fact, that's why at Siding Spring Observatory near Coonabarabran, we can e- easily see the glow of Sydney on the, on the south, uh, southeastern horizon. And we distance, should clarify that by saying we're talking you know, between three and 400 miles or 400 kilometres in terms yes, of it's, distance. It's, it's, it's about 330 kilometres yeah. line of sight. Uh, so um, fortunately, uh, that light pollution and the light pollution of other places like the city of Dubbo, uh, city of Tamworth, uh, Coonabarabran itself, those, uh, those light plumes have not yet impacted on our ability to use the telescopes because uh, at the zenith point, the point directly above us, the sky now is as bright as, as it, sorry, as dark as it was uh, when the observatory was founded back in the 1960s. So uh, we're still in a reasonably good place. But the problem with light pollution uh, for everybody, and not just astronomers, it's a death by a thousand cuts. So when you look at uh, a city and see the, uh, the, the glow of that city, a lot of that comes from individual light sources that have been designed without much thought as to where the light is going. Uh, what damages the night sky is direct upward light. If you've got a, a, a light that's got a, um, you know, whether it's an LED or a, an incandescent globe or a metal halide globe, if, if that light source is actually able to, to direct light above the horizontal plane, then it is going to contribute to light pollution. If it's yeah. below the horizontal plane, that, that tends to mean that you're illuminating what it's supposed to illuminate, and, and that's a much better situation. But above the horizontal plane is what is dangerous to the night sky, and our cities have basically evolved with no thought of that. And so we now have a situation which has been um, basically has been um, uh, calibrated or uh, quantified by this new atlas of light pollution, which is what the story is really about. Uh, This comes from a scientist, uh, well, a group of scientists, actually, basically at the um, University of Padua in Italy. Uh, They're led by a man with the delightful name of Pier Antonio Cinzano, um, who has pioneered this uh, technique of studying uh, how the atmosphere propagates light um, and uh, basically has used satellite images uh, and n- knowledge of light, of, of the way light pollution behaves, to produce an atlas of the whole world, uh, showing uh, how you know badly light polluted our cities and towns are. Uh, this is not the first uh, of the atlases that this group has produced. Back in two thousand and one, they they produced the, the very first atlas of light pollution uh, in the night sky. Uh, Now, 15 years later, we've got a new one. And the uh, interesting thing is we can, you know, compare how things have changed. And the probably not an unexpected news is that light pollution has got significantly worse uh, in the the 15 years since the first one. Yeah, it's not surprising at all. And um, I I think it's just a a creation of the modern world and um, you, you look at some parts of the world from space and it just blows your mind the amount of light that's pouring off the planet it's uh it's almost scary really um it is it, well that's right and it's it's principally the northern hemisphere it's um europe north america the far east these are the regions of the world which are the most light polluted so the the new atlas um there's some quite interesting statistics. It shows that more than 80% of the world's population 
uh, live under light polluted skies, and that rises to 99% in the US and, and Europe, which is not surprising. No. Um, about one third of humankind can no longer see the Milky Way. And that's significantly more than it was back in 2001. <clears throat> the estimate then was uh, around about one fifth of the po world's population couldn't see the Milky Way. Well, it's an interesting uh, point you make there, Fred, because uh, I often have spoken to people visiting where I am, which is Dubbo in central New South Wales, which is only a small provincial city, really. Uh, in global terms, but they, they come out from Sydney and they, they often just say, wow, the sky is amazing at night here, because <laughs> yeah. they can't see it. That's right, that's correct. Um, I, I mean, you might remember that um, it's probably about five or six years ago there were major power cuts in North America, mm. and it made the headlines that people could see stars in the... Yes. In, in, in the city of New York. In fact, some people didn't know what they were. They just had no idea and what they were. And all the cavemen that read that article went, what on earth are they talking about? Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> um, the, I have a, a different take on this, though, Andrew. I, 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 yes, things have got worse. But we are now approaching a time when there's much more awareness of the damage that light pollution does, not just for astronomy, but for, the, for the, the, the world species in general. We know, for example, that um, about a million, uh, sorry, about one billion birds per year die in, uh, in North America by being confused by the lights of cities. These are migrating birds that either crash into lit buildings or just orbit around them until they drop. Mm. It's, um, uh, you know, so, so we, we damage the environment in a, in a very big way. And principally, the, the, the worst thing about light pollution is that uh, it's wasted energy. It's energy that we, we could well do without throwing away. Um, in, uh, in the USA, they estimate something like $3.3 billion per year is, is wasted because of upward light spill, light that's not going where it's meant to be, yeah. light that's just going upwards. As, as uh, you would know, though, there are some places that are doing things about it. Where I live, Dubbo, because yes. we're in such close proximity to Siding Spring Observatory, uh, they've made major inroads in, in reducing the amount of light emission in this city. In fact, if you stand up in a high point in, in Dubbo, which is very difficult to do, actually, um, <laughs> you do notice that the light... Emit, uh, light emissions from the city are quite quite um, low in yeah. terms of yeah, it, it actually look, has an orange hue about it. It's not a bright city, and yes, I don't mean right. that in the intelligence sense. No, that, that, that's a, it, right. It is a fact, low emission that, area. It's good because um, that orange is um, is actually be is a better source of light in terms of how it propagates through the atmosphere. The more blue light you've got, the worse it is. Mm. Um, but the point I was going to make, and it follows on from that, is that light technology now is able to control the light in a much better way than it could in the past with LEDs and the new fix fixtures that are being used for that. So it's now much easier for lighting designers to, to put the light downwards where it's meant to be going. Um, more, more than that is that there is a much greater awareness among the population in general as to the evils of light pollution and the fact that we are throwing away energy and you know, contributing to greenhouse emissions. So that's why I'm optimistic. I look forward to a day, it hasn't arrived yet and I don't think it will be uh, for a few years, maybe decades, but 
I believe there will be a time when we when the amount of light pollution in cities does start to turn down just because of better education, better technology and the fact that people want to uh, preserve the night sky and they want to so, sleep at night and sleep at I'm night. I'm not joking. Right. It's 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 another factor to bring into the mix. Indeed, that's right. Mm. <laughs> and and just as a little side note, you mentioned Dubbo in that conversation. We also mentioned the city of Tamworth, which is north of Siding Spring Observatory, about the same distance it is from Dubbo. It's uh, almost almost due east, yeah. actually. Oh, due east, sorry. Yeah, you're right. I'm looking at the map from my perspective. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. uh, um, it, it, it is known as the city of light. Tamworth was the first provincial city in Australia to have electric light. So yeah. it's all we, their we, fault, Fred. Um, I... I I'm actually I'm, I'm a bit of a fan of Tamworth. <laughs> Me too. About, I used to live there. About, about a decade ago, uh, somebody in Tamworth wanted to mount uh, a searchlight pointing upwards uh, to denote that Tamworth, Tamworth was the city of light, and this would, would be something that passing aircraft could see. Mm. An upward pointing searchlight, and they were dropped on by the city council because uh, Tamworth uh, was aware of the requirements for good lighting and siding spring and they wanted to be known as the city of good light yes rather than bad lighting so yeah it's pretty good it is indeed <laughs> this is space nuts andrew dunkley here with fred watson space nuts and fred on to our final topic today uh, mini satellites and um, testing them before uh, a launch that looks like it'll happen before the end of this year uh, uh, what's what do they mean by mini satellites yeah, there's this whole, um, uh, once again, a new era of, um, of a kind, this time in space exploration. Um, there is a new generation of what are called CubeSats, which basically uh, are uh, little cubes, <laughs> uh, 10 centimetres on a side, so you know, four inches in the old, in the old measure. Um, and they're a kind of, um, they provide a sort of chassis, a, a basis to put together a space, a little satellite that will do a particular job, and um, these things are becoming very much the uh, the state of uh, the art in terms of um, trying to do things like remote sensing, uh, communications, new communications technologies, new technologies of various kinds can be tested using these micro satellites, the CubeSats. Mm. Um, and why it's big news is that um, there's going to be a fleet of 50 being launched in uh, by the European Union. Uh, they have a project called QB50, uh, 50 CubeSats, which will go um, into orbit and do various things. Um, and that apparently is, um, is going to happen later in the year, as you said. But the, the news that affects us is that uh, the, um, the Australian National University at their Mount Stromlo observatory facility they have a space proving um, rig uh, which can be used to to test satellites uh, and spa other space hardware uh, for undergoing the rigors of first of all launch because of the heavy vibration and also the uh, uh, you know the rigors of space flight itself with the radiation and things of that sort they've got this facility they are testing three of these mini satellites and i think um uh, the Mount Stromlo people are very pleased about this, that uh, this venture, European venture into space actually has uh, Australia being playing a significant role. It's a collaboration between various Australian universities, but the work itself is being done at Mount Stromlo. So but it's great news. They, they look like a 
um, you know, when you look at the design, they look a bit like a, an old game I used to play as a kid called Kaplonk, when you oh, used yeah. to drop marbles down this thing and, yeah. and try not to make them all fall out. It's, yeah. that's, it just looks the same. It, it, well, it's probably, you know, the, the same geometry, but what the satellites are, it's basically just a, a, a framework within which you can slot printed circuit boards and all the rest of it that need to go into a spacecraft. Very, very interesting. Uh, I think they, they combined two of these cubes together to make one CubeSat. So mm. And, and they, they'll launch all of them at the same time if they're that small? Well, that that's is the plan? The, that's the case, yeah. So you can put 50 in orbit at once. And when you say they're going to do various things, do we know any of those various things that they're going to do? Um, a lot. Some of it's earth, um, you know, uh, earth monitoring. Um, uh, Matthew Collis, uh, who's the uh, director of the Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics, where this work's been carried out, he says that they're beginning to test out technologies that mean in future fleets, constellations of these small satellites could be continuously monitoring the Earth, taking images of the Earth on a much more regular basis than satellites currently do now, so we can track changes on the Earth in real time. It could be used to track the course of a bushfire, for ah. example. Um, you know, so that's the kind of thing that um, that is, is, is planned for these CubeSats. Great stuff. Yeah, it is. And we seem to be sort of entering into an age of miniaturization in space we've got the CubeSats we talked a few weeks ago about the uh, the mini um, satellites that they want to send to Alpha Centauri I mean this there's yes, there's some pretty amazing stuff going on small is good it is yeah and cheap <laughs> <laughs> much cheaper than we should think about that for our podcasts actually. <laughs> maybe maybe uh, that wraps it us uh, us up Fred thank you again and um, it's always great to talk to you Good, good stuff. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Speak next time. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. And uh, from me, Andrew Dunkley, thank you for listening. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook. Tell your friends. Spread the word. Um, give us some reviews on iTunes. Uh, we'd love uh, for you to do that. And, of course, keep sending us messages. We, we do love to get your uh, notes and messages and um, hear about where you're listening. Some people have been listening to us on boats. Some people have been listening to us in, um, in all sorts of strange places, which is fine. I mean, that's the beauty of modern technology. So um, keep in touch, and we'll talk to you again next week on Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom, and Stitcher, or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.